Thank you. Welcome, everyone. We're so grateful that you're here with us um, as we turn the corner towards Thanksgiving. There, I have a lot of gratitude for the, uh, the women and men who help lead worship here, and I'm so thankful uh, for, for your leadership and the way that you all serve us and, and help us to encounter Jesus. So that might be a slight, subtle cue to, to thank them. For the last 14 weeks, we have been on this journey through 1 Corinthians. Now, often the way that we put together a sermon series will take six weeks, maybe we'll stretch it to seven weeks, and we'll look at a, a, a small part of the Bible, or we'll come up with a theme and work through that. So one of the things that I am so grateful for when we get the chance to slow down and to be a bit more, a bit less rushed as we make our way through Scripture, um, what can happen along the way is you can almost build this affection and connection for that particular biblical writer. And uh, that has certainly been true for me in this fall as we've walked through 1 Corinthians with the Apostle Paul. Whenever I spend extended time with Paul, uh, I'm just reminded what a fascinating person he was. I mentioned this a few years back. Um, Some of you might remember this ad campaign for a certain carbonated beverage And uh, it ran for a number of years. It was called The Most Interesting Man in the World. You familiar with that? You've got this sharp-dressed, debonair, James Bond-looking dude with the perfect beard. Not that I would be jealous of that. But um, in these commercials, he's diving off of rocky cliffs. He's traveling through the Amazon forest. He's freeing a grizzly bear from a trap with a three-piece suit on. And there's a voiceover that says things like, He is the life of parties he has never attended. Every time he goes swimming, dolphins appear. He once had an awkward moment just to see how it felt. He lives vicariously through himself. He is the most interesting man in the world, right? Okay, so it rings a bell for some of you. Well, uh, in so many ways, that's the Apostle Paul. Born as Saul of Tarsus, he became the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. We would not exist as a church if it weren't for Paul. He was an intellectual force. He was courageous in the face of suffering. Survivor of shipwrecks, pastor to pastors. If they were making a commercial about him, it might say, he once stayed in prison because he wanted to. He is the most interesting man in the world. And we looked at this a few weeks ago where Paul writes, I have become, it's kind of a vision statement for his life. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And if you look at his life, this is so true of Paul. To the Jewish people, he had the credentials of a Pharisee. To the Greeks, he was educated with a PhD in rhetoric. Among the more powerful elites of his day, he had the most valuable passport in the world as a Roman citizen. And we've seen throughout this series, if you've been tracking with us, the, the depth of his wisdom, his courage and willingness to speak directly into some of the most difficult, awkward uh, social topics. Because the Corinthian church was kind of in a tailspin. Right? Deep divisions, sexual scandals, cultural tensions that were seeping into the church. And we see Paul over and over again, masterfully leading and loving this messed up church. So I'm a little bummed that today we come to the end of this letter. Next week, Advent starts, we're kind of shifting gears, but we get one last Sunday with Paul. 
and I'm gonna try to make the most of this. I was thinking this week how you learn a lot about a person by reading their letters. Recently, I uh, went back and I found a box of letters that Allie had written to me when we were uh, first started dating. At the time, I lived in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada. She lived in North Carolina. And this was before, you know, unlimited international talk plans on your iPhone. So, like, communicating internationally was really expensive. So we wrote a lot of letters to each other uh, over those years. And this week I went back and I read some of them. And, um, and then I asked Allie if, and I shouldn't have done this, but I asked her if I could look over some of the letters that I had written to her. And comparing the two of these was just embarrassing. Her letters were lengthy, multiple pages, thoughtful prose, beautifully legible handwriting. My letters were short and messy and choppy. My cursive looked like some Ugaritic dead language. But something I noticed is that um, Allie's handwriting, as she got to the bottom of the last page of a letter, her writing got really small. Because it's like she's trying to cram in as many details and updates and communication and gushy, schmoopy words as possible before she signs off, love, Allie. Well, some biblical writers think that's, that's what we have with the closing chapter of 1 Corinthians. First 15 chapters, Paul is eloquent and thoughtful. You have the unforgettable love poem of 1 Corinthians 13, the theological tour de force on the resurrection in chapter 15. But then when you get to chapter 16, the final words, it's like Paul is all over the place. Well, some scholars think that when Paul was done with 1 Corinthians 15, he still had all these things that he needed to talk about and get out there and write about, but he only had this little bit of parchment left. And he didn't want to wait, you know, waste a whole new sheet of parchment because they, it was rare and really expensive, right? Supply chain issues, European unrest, all, you know, stuff like that. And so he's like, let me see if I can cram everything I need to say into just a few short, small paragraphs at the very end of the letter. And that's what we're going to look at today. In fact, one writer, a guy named J.D. Greer, has called this the, the tapas chapter. You ever been to a tapas restaurant? T-A-P-A-S restaurant? And um, you order all these tiny little dishes, and they come out just one after another. And you, you, get, you get a little taste of a lot of different things. Well, that's kind of what we have with the closing chapter of Corinthians. It's like theological tapas. And so to wrap up this series, we're just going to walk through this one tapas at a time. Am I saying that right? I feel like I'm getting weird stares. I don't know. Tapas? All right. Does this sound good? Can we do this? We're going to go through the whole thing. So we'll start in verse 1. Old school, just verse by verse. Now, concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as, they, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So first, Paul urges the Corinthians, before he signs off, to set money aside every week for a collection. And likely this is in response to a famine in Jerusalem. Uh, a couple things to notice. First, Paul says each of you is to set something aside. Now, based on the rest of this letter, we know that the church in Corinth had people all across the socioeconomic spectrum. 
In fact, earlier Paul had devoted a whole section of the letter to rebuking some of the wealthier members of the church for excluding the poor from their communion meals. So when Paul says each of you, he's being real intentional that giving is a practice for everybody, not just the well-off. And you want to know who we can learn this from today? The church in the majority world. One of the most uh, powerful, humbling experiences that I have ever had um, was actually on a mission trip with uh, some folks who were in this room today. We were uh, going to Cuba, and we were visiting and being encouraged by and encouraging our sister churches in Cuba, church planners that we help support. And uh, we went to a worship service with these, uh, with these church planners. And uh, this, this is slightly different maybe than what you're accustomed to on a given Sunday. Worship service lasts for a couple hours, you know, if that's on the conservative side. The, the music is out of this world. Everybody is singing at the top of their lungs. The pastor is kind of making his, he's sort of running all over, not just the stage, but all through, you know, the, the, the chapel, just preaching his lights out. This was not frozen, chosen, Presbyterian kind of worship. But then when they get to the, they, they, they come to the giving moment. And you, you have to understand, just as a background, even a well-paying job in Cuba might bring home the equivalent of $40 U.S. dollars a month. So families often have to find side hustles on the black market just to have enough resources to provide for their family. But when they gather for worship and they come to the offering moment, it is a celebration. And every person, every family in that church, they come forward and they present their gifts and they do it with joy. Paul says, each of you, Give as an act of joyful obedience before God. And then notice he also says, on the first day of the week, the first day of the week, point being, it's a regular practice. Giving to the church is not meant to be an impulse thing. We don't wait for something to stir in our hearts. Although it's a wonderful thing when you see something and there's something inside of you that just says, we have to get behind that. We gotta support that mission or that cause or that relief work. That's a, that's a gift. But giving is meant to be a regular spiritual practice on the first day of the week. Now, one of the questions that we get every so often here at this church is, well, if that's the case, what happened to passing the plates? Right? And yes, we still have a giving moment near the end of each service, but what about passing the plates? And you know, the ushers, as I was preaching about this at 9.30, are like, put us in the game, coach. Like, we are ready to do the offering again. So let me just acknowledge, fair, fair question, and it's something that our, our worship leaders, our worship committee is looking at. Now, obviously, passing the plates, we understand during the pa pandemic, we, you know, everybody paused that. But what happened is that so many people shifted their regular giving practice online. And yes, there are still some folks who give their weekly offering, you know, at the end of the service, they walk out, they put it in the offering boxes, um, and we're grateful for that. So before we get into, you know, offering gate or I create some new controversy in the church, the point here is, is not so much like how are you going to receive the offering, it's are you building the practice of generosity into your lives and into your children's lives as a regular sacrificial act of worship. And this is not meant to be a legalistic thing. It's not about guilt. It's about stepping into the reality of a life, of life with a God who gives. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. And when I do that, when I give, 
God begins to change my heart from this anxious, grasping, hoarding heart into a generous heart. And if we get all legalistic about this, it'll kill it. It'll crush the joy. Churches mess this up all the time. You know what the number one question in congregations is when tithing is taught? The number one question. Do I have to tithe on the gross or the net? It's like the biggest question. I have a friend whose response to that, he says, do you want to be blessed on the gross or the net? Okay, those are his words, not mine. Don't. Because when we get stuck on stuff like that, gross or net, it sort of loses the spirit of generosity because it's never about having to do something. It's that I get to. I'm invited to, to join, to partner with God in unleashing blessing and extending mercy and compassion and justice to the ends of the earth. And I know there's a lot more that we could do here, but it, this is like tapas, right? Small plates. So we're just going to keep moving on to what's next. Verse five, Paul continues, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And I just pay attention to the language here as Paul lays out his plans. Perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. So just a quick word here. Notice how Paul lays out his travel itinerary. And it's like he has a plan but he's holding it so loosely. He says, perhaps I'll stay with you, maybe even all winter. I, I, I long to spend time with you, if the Lord permits. In other words, he is open-handed. I mean, here's a man who has walked with Jesus long enough to know that we cannot be certain about every step along the way. There's an open-handedness. God is in charge of my itinerary, he says. Like, I'd love to see you guys. I miss you. I hear the winters are lovely in Corinth, but I'm not sure. This is a huge week for traveling and flying. I know some of you are gonna be getting on planes. Uh, we'll be flying tomorrow to Georgia. And some of you, if you are anything like me, you are wired to just have every single step along the way nailed down to the minute. You're the guy that tries to time the Uber request before you've even gotten off the plane. Have any, any of you know what I'm talking about on this? And like, you're not even off yet, but you've, you know that like at 159 of the grace period before they start charging you, you're gonna walk out of the terminal into the Uber. And I read this of Paul, like, I hope to be with you if the Lord permits, I might come, I'm not sure. And I so could not travel with the Apostle Paul. Like this would drive me crazy. But Paul knows I'm not in charge. This is God's itinerary, not mine. Now, one other little point, and it's this, gem of a verse in verse 9. He says, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. It's like God has opened a door and, not but, and there are many who oppose me. Often we think if I bump up against opposition, maybe it's because I'm doing something wrong. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. The fact that there is opposition means I must be doing something right. If you're obeying and if you're trusting and if you're stepping into 
And through that open door that God has for you to make an impact, you will face opposition. Don't be surprised by that. And we could spend more time unpacking that, but it's just tapas. Got to move to the next one. Verse 10. And I love this section. Paul says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord, as am I. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. This is great. Basically, Paul says, look, when Timothy comes to bring my next letter, don't shoot the messenger. I know that I've been hard on you guys, and I've said some things that maybe you didn't like, but don't take it out on, I mean, he's just the mailman, okay? So just be nice to Timmy, all right? Verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with all, the older, with all of the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has an opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men, which was a, that was a common phrase in the ancient world that meant be people of courage. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love, which isn't that, hasn't that been the heart of this entire letter, do everything in love. It's not about wisdom. It's not about status or honor in the eyes of others. It, it's about love. Because there's all this conflict, there's infighting and scandals in the church and they're just barely trying to figure out how do we hold it together? How do we live together in community? Paul says, make sure everything you do is done in love. Otherwise, you're just a resounding gong. You're like a clanging cymbal. And then verse 13, um, and I want to focus here for just a moment. He uses this image of keeping watch. And it's like this, if you picture a soldier keeping watch through the night upon the city gates. And maybe this is just me, but church, if there's a message for us today, this might be it. Be watchful. Be on your guard. Because there is an enemy who wants to seduce us into complacency, especially when things are going well and we're extending God's kingdom and we're making an impact. That's when we are most vulnerable. And one of the things that keeps me up at night when I think about all that God is doing in this church is that we would get lulled into complacency and even pride that we'd begin to look around and see all this growth and energy and more people coming to faith and new churches being planted and there's energy and momentum and we're growing not just in numbers but in mission and engagement. And if you look at the church throughout history, if we slip into a kind of institutional pride, just patting ourselves on the back, it is a setup for a takedown. It reminds me a little bit in Revelation of what the risen Jesus says to one of the seven churches. In Revelation 2, Jesus himself sends a letter to the Ephesian church. Now, of all the churches in the Roman Empire in the first century, the Ephesians, they were leading the way. It's full of life, great ministries and programming, lots of mission projects, huge children's ministry, overflow, you know, on Christmas Eve. Everything was going away. This was the church that other churches would visit for the denominational conference because they wanted to learn from them. Does anyone remember what Jesus says to this church? But this I have against you, that you have forgotten your first love. Flagship church that every, had everything going for it, 
Everything was up and to the right, but just this one thing, they forgot their first love, their unyielding passion for Jesus. It is in these seasons when we think that we're having a greater impact, that, that we are more vulnerable than ever to losing that, that edge, that watchfulness, that commitment to Christ. And I can almost imagine Jesus saying to the church in Highland Park, I see the great things you're doing. I see how you're advancing my kingdom and you're helping people find and follow me. Way to go. I see your heart for mission and, and acts of justice and serving the marginalized. Well done, well done. But just this one thing, don't lose your first love. That love you had when you first gave your lives to me, where your devotion to Christ was the passion with which you woke up first thing in the morning and it carried you through the day. And when you went to bed, that was the thing that helped you drift off to sleep. Stay awake, stay alert. Verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. And then I love this line, give recognition to such people. One of the temptations when we're reading through a passage like this and we're kind of getting to the end and it's like the list of names and, and like we don't even know how to pronounce them and so we just kind of go to the next little section. But this is a reminder that the work of ministry, it's about unheralded people. It's about Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus and Cole and Vic and Lauren and Bob and Emily and we need each other, every one of us. And we may not see them on a stage and they may not have books of the Bible named after them. And if Paul hadn't mentioned this cast of characters, we would have never known that they were part of the church, but they prayed faithfully and they gave sacrificially and they welcomed people into their homes and they encouraged the church. Paul's not doing this on his own. It takes every one of us called together to be watchful and courageous. Verse 19, we're almost to the end. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. And then this exhortation that Paul uses, I think, five times in the New Testament. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. A holy kiss. When I was growing up, I always wondered, why didn't we do that in church? Like, why, why were we living in disobedience and not practicing the holy kiss every maybe someday we'll do that not today what makes a kiss a holy kiss there's a surgeon named Richard Selzer and he writes about this unforgettable moment where he had to do surgery on a beautiful young woman and he did the best he could but she had a tumor that had to be removed and in order to remove the tumor he had to sever this tiny twig of a facial nerve that controlled the muscles of her mouth and it left her mouth twisted and palsy. And I'll quote Selzer here. Her once lovely face would have this disfigurement the rest of her life. She had that kind of face that would sometimes cause people to just stop and look at it because it was so lovely. No one would ever do that again. If they stopped to look at her face from that date on, it would be for another reason. He goes on, he writes, 
Her, her young husband is in the room when she wakes up from surgery. She asks for a mirror, and she looks into it. She asks the surgeon, will my face always look like this? Yes, he says. Yes, it will, because the nerve was cut. She is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It is kind of cute. It is a scene of such unbearably tender love that Selzer lowers, lowers his gaze. The husband bends down to kiss her crooked mouth, and Selzer writes this, I am so close that I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her their kiss still works. Maybe that's the holy kiss. In Jesus, in Jesus, God took on the twisted, crooked, sinful human flesh in order to save us and to show us, to help us know his kiss still works. And just as God has loved us this way, so we are to do the same. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be cursed. And then he uses this Aramaic word that was common among the earliest Christians. We see it as three words, but it was just this phrase, this Aramaic phrase, Maranatha, our Lord, come. And we'll close with this, because I love this word, and there's no better word to help us prepare for Advent. The earliest church fathers, they, they came across this word, and they read it as Maranatha in the past tense. Our Lord has come. He has come in Jesus. God has come to us, Maranatha. Well, then along came some readers who started to read this word, Maranatha, in the present, as in, our Lord is coming. Look in our, into our midst. Look how he's breaking through the darkness. He's bringing his love and his presence and his grace. Maranatha. Then others began to read it, and they said, no, 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 no. It, it means, our Lord, come. Please come again into this broken, sin-stained, suffering world and make all things right. Maranatha. And could it be that there is truth in all three of these? He has come. He is coming. And he will come again. How we long for him one day to come back and make all things right. And so as we gather around our Thanksgiving tables this week, may we give thanks for all the ways that God has come into our lives with grace and hope and provision and forgiveness, even as we prepare ourselves for Advent, this season when we join together with churches around the world and praying, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. And so, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen. amen.